Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 21 down through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do humbly ask that you would teach us, that you would help us to have a heart of wisdom, but not that we would be puffed up in that wisdom, but we would walk in it, we would walk in the truth, and we would worship you in spirit and truth, and we would be those who are light and salt in this world, are those who are able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And yet we pray that our lives would exalt you, would glorify you in all things. As we have sung this morning, in light of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a love so amazing, so divine, that demands our life, our soul, our all. We ask that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Does the use of allegory in Scripture bother you? I will admit I have trouble with allegory. Uh, I have read John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, and it is helpful to see that he lays out uh, the names of people and places to kind of help us understand the story of Christianity. There is Christian, there is hopeful, there is faithful. There is also Mr. Money Love, Mr. Facing Two Ways. Those are things that are helpful for me, but I still struggle. I've read that work a couple of times and cannot fathom all of the allegory he's put in that. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, their allegory. I have seen the 
Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I've read it as a book, I've seen it as a movie, and I've seen the theatrical production, and I'm still trying to understand all of the allegory, but it is hard to miss Aslan the Lion portraying our Lord Jesus Christ. But what about allegory of Scripture? Those are works of fiction, but what about Scripture? Well, what is allegory? I was not uh, satisfied with the uh, definitions that I saw in the commentary, so I turned to um, the internet. And a professor, a Catholic professor in Milan, I think writes a very succinct understanding of what the allegorical uh, procedure was as espoused by Plato in the 4th century BC. He says this, an allegorical reading is based on the distinction made by the Greek philosopher Plato between the sensible world which human beings perceive through their bodily senses and the intelligible world, the more important realms of ideas which they grasp intellectually. In allegorical reading, he goes on to say, the sensory corresponds to the immediate, the literal or historical meaning of the text, and the intellectual to its deeper symbolic or spiritual contents. Now, we are among those who take the scriptures literally, what they say to be true, but here we see in this passage, Paul is saying, yes, but there is a deeper meaning. There is symbolism here that you need to grasp. But we don't go with the way of, I believe I would call him a Plato disciple, Philo, who lived about the time of Christ from 20 BC, they believe, to about 50 AD. Um, and here's how he would take the passage. And I think this is why, um, if I could use this term, uh, when I read allegory, particularly from someone like Philo or Origen, I, I get the heebie-jeebies. Because it's like, where is he getting these things? And I want to, just a couple of examples, if you will uh, permit me. In the story of Abraham and Sarah, that we will refer to in this passage in Genesis 16 through 21, uh, Philo says that Abraham represents the soul in its advance toward divine knowledge. And Abraham, after he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, is the elect father of sound. Because sound implies speech, and speech is the symbol of his father's house. Sarah, whose name is, was Sarai, princess, is virtue which rules over the soul. And the reason Abram and Sarah don't have any children is because divine virtue is barren to him at a time. And what about Hagar? Well, Philo believed that Abram must cohabit with Hagar because Hagar represents the encyclical knowledge of wisdom, logic, grammar, geography, rhetoric, and astronomy all of which are mastered by an initiatory course of mental discipline. That's why I get the heebie-jeebies. But Paul's use of allegory is different. 
And I don't know, and the commentators don't know, and I, I think it's almost impossible to tell exactly if this is the right word. Is it allegory? Is it typology? Or is it something else? We, we don't hear Paul in this passage saying, here is the type and here is the anti-type, as we would in other sections of Scripture. So I don't know that it's typology, but it's probably somewhere in between. It is a type of symbolism. But Paul does view, as some of the allegorists will not view, the narrative of Genesis as history. Because as we begin here to look at the allegory, he starts with history. He, he says these things happened. But he does give it added meaning. He shows that the Genesis, Genesis narratives foreshadow New Testament realities. They do represent something. And I believe the reason that Paul is using this passage, because it, it kind of comes at a, a, a funny place in Galatians, and it's not characteristic of Paul to write, it is, writ it is written and not quote scripture directly. He says it is written and then he explains a passage of scripture. But I believe that his hermeneutic, his principle or method of interpreting the Bible is based on two things. Christ is the culmination of salvation history. That is his bedrock, that is his foundation, that Christ changed history. But he also believes that God, and we've seen this, he's asked him, haven't you seen the miracles of God among you? Have you not been born by the Spirit? He sees God working in their midst and supplying them experiences of life that are lived in light of the Christ event, in light of the fact that Christ has come, that he has lived and died and risen again. And this, over and against the agitators, those who have come to Galatia from Jerusalem, they would say, but Abraham is our father. And the earth is the line of descendants from Abraham to Isaac and then to the nation of Israel. And the law has been given to us as a means of identity. It identifies us as God's people. And our obedience to that law means that we are true children of Abraham. And Paul argues against them by contrast. And what is the contrast we've seen here in Galatians chapter 4? It's the contrast between slave and free. In verse 9, or sorry, um, in chapter 2, he's already started that argument. In 2 verse 4, false brethren, he says, who have sneaked in to spy out our liberty. Why? He says, to bring us into bondage. A slavery caused by their spying upon them and taking their liberty away. In chapter 3, he says, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We, we were kept a, a, as if a prisoner under the law. And in chapter 4, verse 3, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. The idea of slavery and bondage 
And then he presents his appeals to them in chapter 4. We looked at the section including verse 9, his appeal to the mind. You, you Galatians, you have come to know God, or better, you were come to be known by God. Do you desire, he asked them, to be enslaved again? And then he appeals to the hearts. In verse 15, he says, you, re- you received me. You received me and my message as if I were a messenger of God, an angel, even as Christ himself. Where is that sense of blessing that you had? Where is that sense of rejoicing that you had in that message and in me and what I brought to you? So he gets them to look back at their past where they have been, what they've experienced, and now he says, but look at the present. Tell me, it's an imperative, tell me, you who want to be under the law, you who want to subject yourself to that which I have called slavery, that which I see as a bondage to you, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not understand what it is saying? He's, I believe, again, addressing something that has come to the Galatians by the agitators. They are the ones that have pointed to Abraham and to the law and to the connection that they believe that the Mosaic law is simply an extension, or importantly, an extension of the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant. You who want to be under the ruling authority of the Mosaic Law, do you not understand what it says? You who insist on placing yourselves under the law as the only way of inheriting Abraham's blessing, do you not understand that the law speaks against that? The law itself? It's not about who you are from where you were born, but it is about your identity. Who are you? Or we could say in this case, he's talked about our paternity. Are you sons of Abraham? And now he says, but it matters not just who your father is, but who your mother is as well. It connotes an idea of slavery, and subjection that the Galatians perhaps themselves do not desire, but Paul would have them avoid that because he has already called on the law as the curse of the law, the condemnation of the law. Tell me, he says, do you not listen to the law? But this phrase is a wordplay. You who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And Paul sees, I believe, the Pentateuch, the entire five books of Moses as the law. But we know that there is narrative in the Pentateuch, right? In Genesis, the narrative passage that he refers to, that is not all the legal code. We think of the law as being the legal code, but it is It is more than that. It is legal code. But there's a lot of narrative in it, which is prophecy. 
And there is also wisdom and guidance as our knowledge of God increases by his revelation to his people. And so Paul uses this wordplay. And I believe that it's uh, best explained by uh, the author Brian Rosner in his book. He would translate this verse, verse 21, as, Tell me, you who want to be under the law as law covenant, are you not aware of what the law as prophecy says? Are you not listening to the law as, as a whole? Are you not listening to what it says to you? Do you? Are you not paying attention? This idea of hearing, you know, when I first read this verse, you know, do you not listen? Well, how do you listen to the law? I'm, I'm trying to read it, but it means that attentive knowledge or attentive listening that leads to understanding and leads to obedience. And Paul says, have you not learned what it is actually saying? And I think Rosner is right that many times we come to the law of Moses and not being Jews, we say, well, you know, we need to understand what Paul is saying or what he's referring to. Is he referring to the legal code? Is he referring to the ceremonial law? Is he referring to the moral law? And we want to make those distinctions or what Rosner calls the bits. But I think he's right when he says it's not about the what is the bit that Paul is referring to. He is what Paul is referring to as what? Is he referring to the law as legal or is he referring to the law as prophecy? And I believe he would say to them, listen to what he is saying. He is explaining to you what your identity really is. What it is, the, the Old Testament prophecy looking at Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael, and what does it mean for New Testament reality? And Paul, again, he begins with the historical. He begins by saying to them, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman, but the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. There are two birth mothers. This is the first contrast that he would look at. The bondwoman. Hagar was a slave girl. She's always going to be a slave girl. One, he says, one was born to this bondwoman or slave girl. But another was born to the free woman. But one who was born to a slave was a slave. He was counted as a slave. The identity was his mother. Was your mother a slave? You are a slave. Was your mother free? Then you are a free man. But the second contrast here in verse 23 is the manner of their birth. Their birth mothers were slave or free, but the manner of their birth, one was born according to the flesh, and one was born through the promise. 
The son of the bondwoman born according to the flesh simply means strictly by human effort. And if you read Genesis 16, we know that that human effort was not just the act, but it was their thinking. Uh, We don't know how God is going to provide what he said he would provide, so let's figure out a way to make it happen. And so Sarah offered Abraham her maid, her slave, Hagar. But the son of the free woman was born through the promise. It's a very important word, through. Born as God's fulfillment of his promise to Sarah. It expresses the divine agency. He was born through the promise. And you know what the scripture says about Sarah. She was old. And her womb, as good as dead. She had already passed menopause. She could not have children. There was no human way that Isaac was going to be born to her. But God had him born through the promise. God has fulfilled his promise to Sarah. His divine (coughs) agency in that birth. Not as a result of the promise, but Sarah was old and barren and God intervened. And then Paul says, okay, but listen to what this says. Listen to what these things mean. This is allegorically speaking. Now his approach, unlike what we have talked about in the novelists, those who would have the names mean things, Paul doesn't even mention Sarah. He doesn't, he doesn't say her name, that is. She, he doesn't say Sarah, and he doesn't even say Ishmael. He does mention Hagar, and he does mention very briefly Isaac, but his focus is on that distinction of maternity matters. You are searching for your identity as a believer. As a believer, you are children of the free woman. Unbelievers are children of the slave woman. And so he represents us, these things here to us as <coughs> these things which are really uh, opposing. I, I think of the old phrase from, from baseball, deuce is wild. There, there, there are choices here. There are two mothers. There are two sons. There are two covenants. There are two cities. And as we will see in the end, there are two families. But it's not as if there are other choices. It's either or. It can't be both and. And so he says, these represent two covenants. And this is going to come as a shock to those agitators, to those Judaizers, because he doesn't say what they're expecting him to say. These are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. Bearing children of slavery, as some of your passages say. She is Hagar. 
That is an explosive sentence. To those who were saying to the Galatians, but, but, we are the right ones. We are the ones of promise. And Paul says no. Hagar corresponds to the Mount Sinai covenant. <laughs> Verse 25, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. And remember the agitators, if Paul is thinking in that direction, came from Jerusalem to speak to those in Galatia. And perhaps he is bringing their argument back to them. Do you not understand what the law is saying? The present Jerusalem, he says, corresponds. He uses that word we talked about before, stoichiometry. We get our word from it. It means to line up with, to look at it as two columns. Hagar lines up with Mount Sinai. Hagar and Mount Sinai, there is that symbolic connection between them. Judaism, with its focus on the law given at Mount Sinai, is what? It is their identity. It is who they believe that they are. This is what formed them out, delineated them as the people of God. And Paul is saying, but that's Hagar. She brings forth, she births children of slavery. Hagar represents those who are proceeding from Mount Sinai. The coming under the bondage of the law. Present Jerusalem, like Hagar, is in slavery which leads as you look in chapter 3, leads to sin, being under the bondage of sin. This is the character, this is the attitude of present Jerusalem. He views them as children of slavery. That's a pretty strong sentence. But what is its contrast? But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. The name is not employed here, but I think we can all understand that he is pointing to the Abrahamic covenant. And as Chuck has said in his studies in Genesis, it's more the Abrahamic <coughs> promise. And that's what Paul picks up on here through the promise, the Abrahamic promise, there is a contrast between the Hagar covenant and the Sarah covenant. The sons of the bondwoman are different from the sons of the free woman. The new Jerusalem, like Sarah, is free. The allusion is to freedom from the law. 
And we're not speaking as it would perhaps be in Revelation 21, where we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Uh, Paul is thinking presently. He is thinking the Jerusalem that is heavenly. That is what its character is. It, 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 the illusion or the, the allegory of the mother is still present here. A mother giving birth to children, sharing in freedom from the law and from sin. Last week after service, someone asked me whether I would be interrupting my messages in Galatians to do an Easter message. At least that's what I understood the question to be. My first reaction was very crass. I, I'm not the Pope. I don't do an Easter homily. But that was the wrong answer. The technical answer is that we believe in the regulative principle. We do not follow a liturgical calendar. The, the, the Sunday that follows, and I can't remember how you determine where Easter is, but it's the first moon, full moon after the spring equinox or something like that. We do not follow that. We, we do not see that the scripture has given us that warrant. <coughs> if, if it is not commanded by God in scripture, then it is not lawful for us to do. We, we are told to preach the gospel in season and out of season. We, we are to follow as Paul did. I preach Christ and him crucified. And, and, and so the answer there is no. But, but, but gloriously, what, what Paul writes here, the, the Holy Spirit helps us with the things that he has said here correspond so beautifully to what we do celebrate this day as we take communion because he says, for it is written in verse 27, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. He is quoting from Isaiah 54, verse 1, which is very, very close to the end of Isaiah 53, which you will all recognize as one of Isaiah's servant songs. I'll read a few things here because of time. But what, what Isaiah writes about our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And at the end of that passage, just before the verse that I read from Isaiah 54, 1, he says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Here is your Easter message. And, and Paul is, is thinking that. It, remember his hermeneutic is that Christ is the culmination of redemptive history. And he is saying rejoice. There, there is joy in his heart because he's looking at these reversals that take place. When, when we are born from above through the promise. If we are those who are born of the free woman. 
Their Jerusalem above is free, heavenly. The fullness of its time has come, he has said in Galatians 4.4. The mother is giving birth to children who share in this freedom. The mother who was barren and desolate because that's what Jerusalem was at that time. When Isaiah is writing, they've been taken captive to Babylon. The, the, the city was barren. There, there was no shouting of children in the streets. There was no joy and rejoicing because they were captives. This barren and desolate place is now experiencing the reversal. The woman who was barren and spurned will become a rejoicing mother. The city that was ravaged and left desolate will be repopulated, and as he says in that verse, even more than it was before. And so, no, we do not follow a liturgical calendar. We don't need to. Because the Holy Spirit brings us to a beautiful passage like this servant song. And we are reminded of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on this basis now, Paul makes his appeal in verse 28. And you, brethren... There, there, there is a change of tone here. There is that paternal and pastoral tone, I think, in, in Paul's voice here. And he's, he's already argued for that, hasn't he, in, earlier in Galatians. I wish I could change my tone. And, and his coming to the scriptures this way, his, his seeing what God has done to, to reverse the fortunes of those who, who are in slavery to sin. And, and to become bountiful. Those who were children of slavery, now children of the free. And he says, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. You, children, are in the pattern of Isaac. You are not children of slavery. But by the divine intervention of God, through the promise, not through the law, not through your law keeping, not through your working yourself to God, but by his intervention and by his grace, you are children of the free woman. God gave life to a dead womb. And he gives life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. There's your Easter message. And so he says to them, Do you not think that you, born by the power of the Holy Spirit, will not experience persecution? This is a hard passage, verse 29, but he says, At that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also In Genesis 21, we see that Sarah observed Ishmael, some of your versions say playing, the word could be translated mocking Isaac. From what I can understand, Ishmael would have been about 17 years old. He was born 14 years before Isaac. So when Isaac is weaned, I would say about three 
Paul calls it a persecution. I, I don't know quite how to take that word. Herman Ritterboss says it's not so much a threat to his life, but a threat to his freedom and security. What did Sarah observe? I don't exactly know. But it could be that Ishmael was looking at the privilege, the, the position that Isaac had. He, he was the son of promise. Yes, Ishmael was Abraham's son. Isaac was Abraham's son. But Isaac was the son of promise. And what was Sarah's response? Well, we have it right here in verse 30. He says, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. That is not what God said. That's what Sarah said. And Abraham had some heartburn with it, didn't he? It was like, whoa, I, you know, this is a bit much. I don't know how to take this. And God says, no, no, it's okay. But, but how does Paul use it here? Well, if we follow the allegory, I mean, there are those who say that we need to cast out of our churches, you know, people who are not sons of the free woman. That, that there will be, you know, the biggest persecution that we have as Christians doesn't really come to us, particularly here in America, from the out, those outside the church, but those inside the church. But I think if we follow the allegory, if Hagar is, and it's not the woman, the, the person herself, but representing Mount Sinai, representing the law covenant, representing being under the slavery of that law, he would say to us, distance yourselves from that law obedience if you count that law obedience as your salvation and as your sanctification. Why? Because he's already explained, it is enslaving. It is not freeing. Now it's easier, is it not, to go with the flow to people who say, you know, well, this is how you do it, and you puppet how they do that, and you follow the rules and the regulations, and as long as you check the boxes, you're fine. But Paul is saying, distance yourself from that thinking. Your identity is based on your paternity. Who is your father? He has already said, and if you are, and if you belong to Christ, excuse me, and 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And here he says, your maternity also matters. Are you children of the free woman? Again, deuces wild. Two choices, either or. It can't be both and. Which are you? Are you a child of the king? Are, do you belong to Christ? Then you are Abraham's offspring. You are children of the free woman. Children of the slave woman are those who try to help God out. They try to use the exercise of their own mind, their own will, their own power to make things work out as they think God wants them to be. 
but children of the free woman know Christ, not by works, not by keeping the law, but by faith. And they look at Christ as being sufficient. Not having to add the law, not having to add things to their salvation to make it complete, but Christ to be sufficient, to guarantee their inheritance as Abraham's offspring, as children of the free woman. Which are you? Do you know Christ? Or rather, as Paul says, have you come to be known by God? Do you walk with him by faith? It is, it is, it is your identity, is it your identity, to be known as a Christ one, a Christian one who knows him through faith to the glory of God. Let us pray.